Hello and welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host, Ian Hamilton. And I am his sous chef, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled or burnt to a crisp after their first season. Isn't that right, John? That's right. We have done this whole thing au gratin. Did I use that right? Probably not. I don't know what that means. I don't either. But we have... uh, set up a little barbecue on top of the graves of these shows, (laughs) figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Ian, we have escaped the tundra of Quibuary, and we are back to dealing with very heady, ambitious dramas like Feed the Beast. How are you feeling post-Quibuary? I feel a lot differently about how I watch short format entertainment how about you i mourn what quibi could have been in the most sincere way could have been something could have been a contender instead it's just roku (laughs) now it is other than roku john what have you been watching i just finished re-watching bojack horseman for probably the eighth or ninth time and every time i finish it i just keep thinking this might be the best show that's ever been on tv It has everything, and it does it with a plum because it is smart, it is funny, it is deeply sad and melancholic, but all that stuff is the stuff that I like tend to take away from it when I'm thinking back on the show, but there's so many little details throughout it that still make it somehow so joyful and thoughtful, and the characters are extraordinary. I cannot think of a show that more consistently brings me everything that I could want out of TV than BoJack Horseman. Yeah. Last time I rewatched BoJack Horseman, Natalie was like, Ian, you're really depressed. And I know that because you are binging BoJack Horseman right now. I'm like, why is it a perfect, funny thing to watch while also being depressed while also making me more depressed while I binge it, and yet it's the perfect thing for me right now. It's a special thing that I think very few TV shows, movies, music do, where you can watch it at many different stages of your life and get something completely different out of it every single time you re-examine it. My two Coen Brothers movies that I watch every time I'm re-examining my life are A Serious Man and Inside Lewin Davis when I'm specifically feeling like art is a waste of time and I should just rejoin the Merchant Marine like he does (laughs) or tries to at least. So yeah, I I know what you mean. I I think about that a lot now. Stephen Tobolowsky has a podcast Uh, He talks about life, love in the entertainment industry, and he got way more into Judaism in his later life. And he talks about how it's important, you know, that they go over the Torah year after year, same stories, because the stories don't change, but you do. So you're always getting something new out of it, depending on the stage of your life that you're in. And I'm like, yeah, I get that out of movies too, though. 
Yeah. I don't need to read Study a the lot. Torah? I don't need to read. That's what I mean. <laughs> I just Me should, I just don't need to read. That's what moving pictures are for. Ian, what about you? What moving pictures have you been watching? I have been rewatching the Larry Sanders show for probably the fourth time. Still have never seen it all the way through. I mean, it's just, I love the dynamic between the characters. I think it's a really unique comedy because Gary Shandling doesn't make a lot of jokes. It's just about how him as a character is like really insecure and doesn't like dealing with people and has a hard time relating to them. And everyone else on the show has to sort of cope with the fact that this person that they want him to love them doesn't even want to interact with them, but pretends like he does. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the crux of it. And the Rip Torn is like the bridge between Larry and everybody else. And it's just a really unique comedy. I mean, also, I don't know what my fascination is with talk shows because it's not like I watch a lot of talk shows. I do watch clips like on occasion, but you know... One of my comfort movies that I've watched a million times is The Late Shift. We know this. If you're listening to this show, you know that I love that Leno Letterman drama. I don't even like shows about shows or movies about movies, really. I give them a much harder time than movies about non-entertainment industry things. But uh, you just can't beat the way that Rip Torn and Jeffrey Tambor and the rest swear and insult each other and make up. When I think about the best insults that have been on TV, I I jump to Veep. But again, I have not watched the Larry Sanders show, so I will not judge. No, it's not as uh, insulty as Veep is. Veep like definitely takes that to a whole nother level. But because they're like in your face, you're an idiot. But the Larry Sanders show is more about like talking about each other behind each other's back and to your face, finding the most polite way to tell you that you're an idiot, you know? So there's just a lot of interesting personal dynamics between it. Sounds pretty petty to me. And when I think of petty, I think of showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 2021, Two friends started a podcast based on a podcast from another city several years ago and argued a lot. Similarly, in 2016, AMC rebooted the Danish series Bankerot, a show about a restaurant and its mob connections run by two friends who argue a lot, to series. While the cooking and wine pairing on the show was second to none, audiences and critics alike agreed the storytelling was second to many, many, many other shows. (laughs) as Feed the Beast was canceled after 10 episodes. You put a nice little Danish twang on uh, Bankarat. I like yeah, that. I don't. I didn't even look up how to pronounce that. I'm just giving it my best shot. I took some German in high school. It was a wonderful appropriation, yes. So when we were talking in our 2022 Year in Review episode, and we were talking about shows that we were looking forward to doing in 2023, Feed the Beast was at the top of your list. This is a show I have never heard of. Really? It never crossed my mind once before we started talking (laughs) on this. What was your fascination with this show just from an outside perspective? I think there's a fascination with me about 
shows starring like big stars from sitcoms like Friends, like Seinfeld, like Frasier or whatever, where somebody goes off and has their own show and then it just fails or it limps along a while or it's Cougar Town and that is like its own thing that nobody can explain really. Um, so the David Schwimmer of it all fascinated me, but also I think David Schwimmer is a great dramatic actor. I mean, you watch him in Band of Brothers. He is fantastic he is. in that show. And he's very self-serious just as a performer, too, which I think lends itself to dramas better, in particular the stage. You hear Agreed. him talk about things, and he is all about craft, and he is all about being in the moment and doing that sort of thing. And then you see him on Friends and he's just screaming a lot and you could kind of tell that sort of disconnect between what he was doing on that show and what he really wanted to do, which definitely seems to be something like Feed the Beast. Yeah, exactly. It fed his beast, if you will. Uh, no, I won't. Okay. Uh, John, <laughs> did you ever go to his theater in Chicago? Yes, I have seen shows at Looking Glass. I saw a production of Moby Dick there actually. And it was phenomenal. If I remember it correctly. How big was the theater? Because I don't think I ever went there. It's like a black boxy space. So they could do Mm -hmm. a lot with it. One of Chicago's 200 storefront theaters, at least pre-COVID. But what's fascinating to me about him as a dramatic actor is that rarely these days do I see actors transition to comedy very well i feel like more and more there is a wall between dramatic actors and comedy actors that uh only the cream of the crop can really bridge well uh i think that plenty of comedians can go into drama now but that fewer and fewer dramatic actors can go into comedy and I don't know exactly what that is. Maybe that it's that there's two different types of training now or that there's just so much more content out there. But I just feel like there's a wall to be climbed and it's getting higher and higher. I don't know. Does does that feel right to you, John, or do I sound like an idiot? I feel like that is a adage that we have heard for a while, at least. You know, there's this wall between TV and movies. There's a wall between comedy and drama. And I think that versatility is kind of the name of the game in success in the entertainment industry. So there are a lot of people that are trying to flex those muscles, you know, dramatic actors using comedy to sort of lighten their personal brand, comedy actors showing that they have a different side of them and that creates some sort of surprising opportunity. I do agree that the transition from comedy to drama is definitely easier than drama to comedy. The stuff I've heard about it is that comedy is about relationships and it's about like listening, whereas dramatic acting can be a little self-serving. And so therefore, when you translate that that to comedy, it doesn't necessarily play as well because it just comes off as pompous. So I think that is definitely a wall there. Sure, sure. Cool. So when Feed the Beast came out, it just looked good to me. And I think that there was a lot of advertisement for it. Like, I think it was given a chance. And, you know, David Schwimmer was on, like, Good Morning America, stuff like that. 
And then it premiered and it fell off my radar very quickly after that. Well, this is interesting. You were in New York when Feed the Beast aired, right? Yes, I was newly in New York. But weirdly enough, even though I started being on the deuce after that as an extra, the extras and everyone would talk about all these shows that filmed in New York. No one ever talked about that show. See, I was in Chicago still at that time, and it was completely off my radar. So I think that that's really interesting because, as we'll talk about, this is a show that is set in the Bronx. Essentially, it's about two friends, two long time but recently estranged friends who come together to make a restaurant in the sort of heart of the grittier parts of the Bronx. So the fact that you saw that a lot, even if you didn't hear discourse after it, and I didn't, I think really speaks to the audience that they were trying to play to. Yeah, and I think this was an interesting period in the golden age of drama as well, where AMC, Breaking Bad was over, Mad Men was over. They were still trying to find their next thing. Um, Like this premiered after Preacher, you know. So AMC very much trying to recapture that glory that they had instead of just clinging to Better Call Saul and The Walking Dead with dear life, you know. Yeah, definitely some rigor mortis that is uh, sort of securing that lock on those shows for as long as they could. But let's talk a little bit about the the show itself. So Schwimmer plays Tommy. How would you describe Tommy? Ian? Tommy's a single father. He's a sommelier and loves to tell you what the wine you're drinking would be paired with. But he's kind of a drunk. So as he's selling you wine, he may forget what wine he's talking about. Um, And also he's broke because before the series started, Dion burned down the restaurant they worked at, which is the launching point for a lot of what happens in the series. And uh, also his wife died in a tragic accident that his son witnessed. Generally, as we're going to talk about these characters in this show, Very few good things happen to people on this show. It is a lot of deep, 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 deep tragedy. And when we say, too, that Tommy is a drunk, we mean drinking fine red wine out of a coffee thermos at 10 a.m. kind of drunk as he's walking up to his son's school. It's funny to see him uh, sneak into another room where a hidden glass of red wine is so that he can just like down half of it when he's stressed out. You know, we're so used to the flask, John, that Mm -hmm. we forget about the fine red wine drunks out there that have like those full glasses that let the wine breathe well. Yeah. It's alcoholism with a side of privilege. So it's, (laughs) it's really a beautiful pairing when you get the two of them together. Very stemmy. Well, the two of them, meaning Tommy, that's Tommy, but who's Dion, John? Oh, Dion is uh, his tough-talking... No, who's Dion Warwick? I just heard of her Oh, okay. Dion Warwick is an American (laughs) icon uh, who has recently gained a great following on Twitter. She also had a documentary made about her on HBO Max. Uh, Really just a legend of 
the record and stage, a truly magnificent woman who is just brimming with personality. But she has nothing to do with this show. So oh, who's the character, okay. Dion? Well, I guess we have to talk about Dion. So Dion in the show is played by Jim Sturgis, which, okay, quick side tangent. Jim Sturgis is such an interesting actor in terms of a career that he had. So Jim Sturgis, British guy, had his big breakout in Across the Universe, the Mm -hmm. Julie Taymor Beatles musical, which I love. And I know it's very divisive, but I, I really, really do love that movie. Natalie looked at me the other day and said, does John like Across the Universe? <laughs> and I was like, hey, we all did when it came out, okay? I always skip 15 minutes of Across the Universe. And that is, is it the, the end benefit of, of Mr. Kite? Jeez, it's the worst it's scene so in a bad. good movie. It's yes. the worst scene in a good movie that I think there ever has been. So Jim just broke out in this movie. And I feel like he kind of got the same treatment that like Taylor Kitsch did after Friday Night Lights. Like they kept putting Jim Sturgis in these projects that kept failing. Like he started 21, which was right. his sort of action-y drama movie. And then he was in Cloud Atlas, you know, the Wachowskis and like this multi-century time-bending epic that he played multiple parts in and then we just kind of forgot about him and then he pops up as Dion in 2016 who's just he's constantly out of breath and he's it's like he just runs into a seed and he's putting on this thick New York accent all the way it's it's a wild choice well, he's just a guy from the from the Bronx, you know. He's oh, just yeah. he's that best friend who's from the neighborhood and he's rough and tumble and his parents are dead and he doesn't have much family. Just throwing that in there. And yeah. his parents are dead. The catalyst for the show is that he's recently gotten out of jail right at the beginning of the first episode where he did time as Ian mentioned for burning down the restaurant that he and Tommy had previously owned with Tommy's late wife, Ree, and he gets out, but he owes a lot of money to a lot of different people, specifically the mob. And so he, at one point, Tommy says to him when he's in one of his many jams, you're stuck. And Dion responds, I'm never stuck in anything. Two things, John. One, I don't think they actually own that restaurant. I think they work there and the mob owned it, which is what gets them into drama uh, during the first and only season. And second of all, we actually have a clip from the show that really illustrates Tommy and Dion's uh, back and forth and a lot of the drama that Dion brings to every episode. Forgot about that clip. Yes. No, of course. We got to play it. Yo, T. We gotta hurry up. Did you sleep with my wife? No. Did you? Well, it was a long time ago. Did you make a deal with Patrick? No. How could you say that? Did you? Okay, so what if I did? Do you owe him $600,000? No. How could you say that? And did he threaten to kill me and my son if you don't pay it back? That's... None of your business. I'm taking care of it, okay? 
Can you even open a high-end restaurant in the Bronx? No. How could you say that? Did you sleep with my current love interest? Hey, I thought we agreed to save that argument for season two. Wow, what a clip. Really great find uh, on your part. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have to pay any royalties to use it either. No, we're doing things on the cheap. So we'll get into a lot more of that drama in a little bit, but I just want to introduce the the rest of the characters before we move on, John. We've got Pilar, who is the aforementioned love interest of Tommy, who she meets Tommy at a grief group, mm-hmm. right? And then it turns out that she works at a restaurant and lies about managing the restaurant so that she can become the manager of their restaurant and just sort of be around Tommy. Yeah, she's got goo goo gaga eyes for swim swim and right she, off the bat, right off the bat. Big animated goo goo gaga eyes for swim swim. You got to finish out the sentence. Pilar says that she is in the restaurant business and Schwimmer assumes that that means that she knows how to manage a restaurant. And so he asks her to do it. And she's like, yeah. And Schwimmer's like, we can't pay you. And she's like, don't care. And she constantly reaches out to her sister, who does actually own a restaurant that Pilar is a server at, for this advice as she's sort of scrapping along to do things like getting the health inspection set up, getting the liquor license, making sure that everyone's getting paid. But for the most part, even though she's definitely flying by the seat of the pants, she seems to do an okay job, right? Oh, yeah. Especially the since she has to put up with all of Tommy and Dion's drama. Antics. Shenanigans. There's so many antics and shenanigans. It's really just semantics at a certain point. <laughs> uh, Chad, let's talk about TJ because this is a full storyline of the show. He is the son of Tommy. He saw his mom get hit by a car and die and has not spoken since. Yeah. They show a sort of fractured version of the hit and run. And it was a very sad and serious moment. But I do want to say exactly how it plays out in the show. TJ goes, hey, mom. And Re, his mom, goes, hey, TJ. And then she runs across the street, gets hit by a car, and then he goes, no! Thank you, John. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I it's agree. not that funny. Is, but that the is way exactly the, how it goes. You are correct. <laughs> so after that moment, TJ does not speak. And the show takes place a year after Re, Tommy's wife, TJ's mom, dies. So he has been silent for a year and he's having a tough time. And Dion's sort of reemergence in TJ's life definitely kind of brings him out of his shell a little bit, as well as his relationship with some other people, too. But TJ is kind of the heart of the show and the thing that pretty much every character is kind of fighting for, you know, his sort of innocence. His well-being. Thank you. Because he's so messed up from this accident that he hasn't talked in a year. He has a social worker at school. You know, they're trying to make sure he can have a normal, nice life. Meanwhile, he's getting bullied. And they just have to protect this fragile, sweet, 
young man. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into more of that later. Uh, but first, we got to talk about Patrick, the mob boss, a.k.a. Soft Boy Vincent D'Onofrio. A.k.a. the Tooth Fairy, who is what a lot of people call him because he is the mob boss who rips out people's teeth. He's played by the guy who played uh, Paul Kinsey in the early seasons of Mad Men. So I was like, hey, it's Kinsey. And I was like, oh, God, it's Kinsey because he is a scary soft boy, Vincent D'Onofrio. That's right. Uh, And we'll get more into that later. But, John, I think we can't talk about the characters without talking about the sixth character. Of course. The The Bronx. Bronx. Yeah. A.K.A. the Wild West as it's dubbed at one point. And everybody likes to talk about, I'm from the, I'm from the Bronx, you know, or they're from the neighborhood. The Bronx is, it, no one would start a high-end restaurant in the Bronx, John. Never. No one would ever do that. No, but there is this idea of the Bronx is sort of on the verge of being gentrified. And so that's where they see these sort of quote-unquote opportunity for these multi-hundred dollar meals that Dion the chef and Tommy the sommelier the chef. I guess we should have said that way earlier <laughs> it's yeah, a he's crucial like part the of the genius show. chef yeah how far into this episode everyone's... are we we are 30 minutes into recording this episode we just mentioned that Dion's the chef and this is a show about food yeah well <laughs> you know we kind of mentioned it before but I guess we can talk about more what actually happens in the show right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us one and done pod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Highlight. Highlight. All right, John. Well, this show really packs a punch with the drama and all of the interweavings it also with the punches lives. too there's there some violence in this show oh so you just want to start with the wheelchair fight is that how you want to start the highlights <laughs> let's get into the wheelchair fight <laughs> no <laughs> we should huh. we shouldn't okay let's set up the wheelchair fight uh because the show is in a lot of ways a show about fathers and sons Right. It's about yes. TJ and Schwimmer trying to connect with each other. It's about TJ and what might be his biological father, Dion, trying to connect with each other. We could get to that later. It's also about Schwimmer working with his dad. Who he hasn't spoken to in 10 years because he's a horrible racist. By the way, you know, TJ is half black, half white. Yes. He's a multiracial child. And his dead wife is... Black. And so she, I'm sure, was like, hey, if you love me, we cannot interact with your horribly racist father anymore. So the grandpa has never actually met TJ. No. Right. And just to like really put an accent on the 
sort of point of how sort of blatantly racist Aiden is on the show. I mean, it's like careful. I know. It's like a monologue that's in the middle of do the right thing kind of racist. I will say they go short of racial slurs, like specific slurs. It's all very generic, racially charged rhetoric that he uses. Absolutely. Aiden is the sort of old school, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get whatever needs to be done, done kind of attitude towards business. And apparently it has made him very successful in the Bronx, in New York. They talk about how he is just flush with cash all the time. And he eventually becomes an investor in Dion and Tommy's restaurant, which we should also say is called Terio. They always like really, they really put a zhuzh on it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's Greek or Italian or what. I always thought it was like a combination of Tommy, Re, and Dion. But it also means beast. Oh, okay. We can get to that later then. (laughs) Uh, So he he hasn't spoken to his father in a long time. And I just want to point out the Moran and Sons. I don't even know what he does. Construction? It's like construction, but it's like actually construction, not a sort of front for something more nefarious, it seems like. But he also sort of bullies people into getting what he wants. But yeah, for the most part, construction. Right. Uh, it's just the sign, okay? His the, All the signs everywhere say Moran and Sons Construction, and the and Sons is crossed out or rubbed off or... Uh, scratched off of whatever surface it's on to show us that there is a fractured relationship between the father and the son. And I'm like, this was 10 years ago. Just get a new son. (laughs) For the listener, Ian has been so obsessed with this detail that when he sent me his notes for the episode, he didn't just write Moran and Sons. He didn't like cross out sons or put in parentheses Sons is faded or anything like that. He put a fading effect on the word document for the word sons to emphasize this point. I've never seen this fading effect and I work in word a lot. So <laughs> kudos to you for truly giving me something I've never seen in a word document before. You know, John, communication <laughs> is not just proper punctuation you know sometimes you got to use a little bit of flair to get the point across but i knew exactly what you were talking about so it worked exactly it was effective it was undeniably crazy but effective (laughs) it only took me a second (laughs) also it is moran and son not sons just uh, just right so we started talking about this because we teased a wheelchair fight we're gonna deliver a wheelchair fight (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're going to bring it just like David Schwimmer brings it to his dad that's in a wheelchair because so they haven't talked for 10 years. Dion pressures Tommy into being like, you know, who has money to invest into your restaurant? Your dad. Uh, Sidebar, I need to pressure you to pressure your dad because I'm getting money pressures from the mob right now. But you don't know that. So he goes to his dad. They make the deal done, even though they don't like each other very much. And then part of that deal is that grandpa gets to hang out with TJ once a week or whatever it is. 
And so then there's another story going on that TJ is getting bullied at school and has some really proper bruises on his abdomen, which David Schwimmer discovers one day after TJ comes home from grandpa's house. So thinking that grandpa is beating his own son, David Schwimmer runs over to his dad's office, says, did you did you hit my son? And his dad's like, well, if I did, what would you do, huh? Would you do anything about it? So David Schwimmer uh, punches him in the face, but then gets completely beaten up by his dad in a wheelchair, who then pulls out a gun from his ankle uh, holster and points it right in his face. And says... I would blow your brains out right now, but that's a twenty thousand dollar Persian rug. So he's a he's a little a little hard, uh, a little tough on his his boy. In that right, one one of his biggest gripes with him is that he's too soft, which is another gripe that another dad in the show has with his son, which is the mob boss who's in jail and is Greek, I guess, or Polish or something. Polish. And uh, so Patrick is soft boy Vincent D'Onofrio, the current mob boss because his dad's in jail. He is, he's a softy, right? Even though he kills people, he's a softy. Okay, he's got soft elements, but he only really kind of breaks down in the presence of his father because Patrick will go out and he will do these truly horrifying things to people. He just murders people in broad daylight. And why do they call him the tooth fairy? Because he rips out people's teeth with pliers and collects them and sometimes puts them under people's pillows, which he does do in a later episode. Really just making it a a modern day fairy tale, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he does do these terrible things, but then when he confronts his father about sort of, hey, dad, didn't I do a good job murdering those folks? His dad's like, why would you do that? You're being so stupid about it, you dumb idiot. I know I told you to murder all those people, but you're an idiot for murdering all those people. (laughs) He definitely has an influence, if you will. And so It's kind of interesting, and it's an interesting performance from the actor that plays Patrick because he generally has the same sort of, like, face, which is a scowl, but then when he talks to his dad and his dad's like, you've always been a disappointment, you disappointment, he just sort of, that scowl turns into just, like, mush. And he still is, like, holding it, but he's like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not yeah, going to cry. Yeah, I was going to say, his scowl is always on the verge of crying. Like, he has that sensitivity that Paul Kinsey in Mad Men has mm-hmm. in this character where he's putting on a front, but there is underneath the surface a little boy whose feelings are constantly getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And part of that is this sort of compensation, clearly, because he is in the closet. And so he's definitely hiding that from the world. He's also, again, just trying to meet these expectations of his dad and take over the family business. But you could tell also that it's his business because it's the thing that he grew up with. And the reason that he wants to invest in this restaurant isn't because he thinks it's going to be a money-making machine. It's because he does 
consider himself one with good taste. And you see that a little bit in flashbacks and a little bit in his current day interactions as well. But he cares about the art that Dion is creating with his food, or at least he like sees it as art. You get that sense when you see him talking about it. Forget the fact that he threatens to kill Dion constantly and is extorting him for money and breaks his pinky and wants to pull out his teeth and threatens to kill all of his friends and his friend's son. But he's actually in love with Dion. You think so? Oh, he is. Mm. John, that's... Okay, so there's this element of he meets Pilar at a hospital, and so the two of them become friends. Patrick does, just to clarify that. Yes, despite the fact that they each know each other's friends, they don't know that the other ones know Tommy and Dion. Uh, So she's able to sort of get out of him that he's in love with someone, and he keeps talking about this person. And she's like, oh, who is he? And that's what makes Patrick get salty with her because she sees through him. She knows him. She taps into his emotional soft boy-ness and uh, and can see him for who he is. But no, he's in love with Dion because the shot when at a certain point he finds a spot on the river that would be a beautiful place for new development of a restaurant and Dion is... Uh, squatting, just sort of looking overlooking the land, the camera does a male gaze of Dion's body there. Mm. We like look at his ass basically while he's squatting and just see that like a little bit of, of his genes are like, you know, pooching in a certain way. <laughs> and you see Patrick like looking him up and down. He's in love with Dion. You didn't get that? I thought that he was more so in love with his uh, male sex worker lover who he smothers at one point uh, to... To death. But, like, that interaction that he has with the the male sex worker, it's like, you don't have to pay me anymore. We can be out in the open. And that's after Patrick talks about, I'm in love with somebody and we can't be together. And then after he kills the guy, after Patrick kills his lover... When Pilar asks him, oh, how's that thing going with that guy you like? Patrick's like, it didn't work out or something vague to that effect. So I thought he was talking more about this person who gets one line and then gets killed rather than Dion. I think he has an infatuation with Dion. I don't think that that was the sort of deep love. That. No, that's where the story's going, dude. It's that's why otherwise he would have just killed Dion a while ago, but he thinks he's a brilliant chef. He gives him chance after chance. He's looking him up and down. Dude, he's totally in love with Dion. Okay. I think he's more so in love with Dion's food. Um, which I think that's kind of an interesting thing. This show highlights the biggest, most extravagant kind of meals, like not quite molecular gastronomy level things, but they are throwing out lines like, I've been dying to see how the new Asutico from Santorini pairs with seafood. You know, this is the level of, we've got to get the perfect lamb and this is how to do the scallops and and I'm out of breath because I just came from the market. <laughs> and, and I'm real worried because someone's going to kill me and someone's going to kill both of you. <laughs> 
But I won't tell you, and I'll deny it. What? The relationship between Dion, the chef, who is the one who is creating these magnificent meals. Like at one point, he takes a cake that was actually thrown in the garbage and he makes it this beautiful, like, moosey thing for a food critic. And then you've got Schwimmer, Tommy, who's the sommelier, who I swear is restocking and rechecking that same, like, two racks of wine throughout the entire (laughs) show. And I know that being a sommelier takes a lot of skill and a lot of craft, but once you develop that skill, it seems like a pretty sweet gig to just like walk around and be like, oh yeah, here's a red that'll taste great with that duck. There has also been research done on sommeliers and how that may be a sort of overblown expertise, as it were. But I'm also not going to argue with anyone that says it isn't. It's just that it's a little bit up for debate, especially like to me, I think the whole thing that like Dion's this genius chef who also is getting into trouble all this time and is like a horrible drama factory, not worth it. I don't care how good of a (laughs) chef you are. This is a working environment. You know, there's no HR department to deal with here that you can list your grievances to. This is not how a business should be run, especially not by and with someone like you. Yeah. Pilar is HR and she's barely holding on as we see a lot. (laughs) And she's sleeping with Dion. Uh, She slept with Dion. Okay. Let's talk about, let's run through Dion's many, many transgressions that he does throughout the show. Oh, I got a list. And these are the ones that aren't in the clip that we played earlier. (laughs) Okay, so Dion in the very first scene, really, has sex with his own lawyer in the interrogation room. He has just been released from prison, and she is reading him the terms of his parole as she is. Oh, as he is inside of her. Yes. And he had cocaine inside of a fake lighter that he had in the material that he gets back after being in jail. So, right after getting out of jail, he does a line of coke. And then has sex with his lawyer uh, in the prison still. And then he uh, gets her pregnant, which that comes up later. Um, Then he immediately almost flees the country while he's on parole. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he, he gets very involved in TJ's life, right? He lies to his counselor about a couple things to make it seem like David Schwimmer's doing a better job as a dad. He calls himself... TJ's support person, which the counselor's like, oh, it's good that TJ's got a friend that is a healthcare professional as well. But clearly Dion is not that because if you took two seconds to look at him, you'd be like, no, no reasonable human being would hire this person. Right. And then when she comes to the restaurant after TJ has gotten into some trouble, then Dion smells like weed when she comes there. He is doing coke actively. Uh, and is hiding a lot of coke actively in the restaurant when she's like, I shouldn't be telling you this, but child services is going to show up at some point. There's a lot of cocaine that uh, this man likes to do. Right. But the cocaine is really Patrick's cocaine that he is supposed to be hiding because Patrick stole it from the Vietnamese mob, I believe it is. And then Dion owes Patrick a bunch of money, so he sells the coke that he's supposed to be hiding in order to pay Patrick back the money he owes Patrick, but then Patrick eventually is like, hey, where's that Coke that you're hiding for me? Dion's like, 
actually, I sold some of that. And Patrick's like, I'm secretly in love with you, so I won't kill you. He doesn't actually say that out loud. But, well, and Dion also cuts the Coke with baking powder, too, in order to hold on to that supply as much as he can. So he's also screwing over his friend, the Coke dealer, who works down at the meat market. He also takes TJ to the Coke deal that's at the market, and that puts TJ in a precarious position with a police officer who pins him to the ground. Dion is just the light that all the bad idea moths just kind of fly to. (laughs) He is a mess. And he's a moth himself flying to all other kind of bad ideas. That's true. It's like one of those things where you want to just shake this guy and be like, hey, dude, do you have an instinct to do something? Let's try the opposite for once. So moving on from Dion, because I think I think people get who Dion is at this point. And Dion's got to run a 5K. Oh, he'll be back in a second. I've always been running. That's why I'm always out of breath. The Jim Sturgis school of acting is breathe while you're talking (laughs) and take a very generic accent with you. One more thing, too. He also fakes uh, receipts from a wine shop that went uh, away years ago, gives them to Pilar. So then he sort of implicates her in fraud, basically. Oh, right. That's because he stole a bunch of wine and stuff from David Schwimmer's previous employer. And also they beat up a security guard and that was a thing. Dion is all kinds of trouble. Not worth it. No. Toxic relationship. I would agree with that. So let's talk about um, the dead wife. Yes. Re. I just want to say that she looks a lot like Julie Bowen. Mm -hmm. Her face shape is exactly the same. Her cheekbones, her smile... There is so much Julie Bowen in there. And she's only shown in all these flashbacks where there's like so much sunlight Mm -hmm. and she's so airbrushed all the time. She's just this perfect, angelic, dead wife. Yes. And I mean, this is starkly contrasted with the way that the rest of the show is lit, which is very, very dark. I watched about half of these episodes on a plane. And even with my brightness all the way up, I still didn't think I could see everything. Wow. Yeah. There was a purpose to having her be this sort of dream version of herself in these flashbacks. And obviously, Tommy Schwimmer is still mourning the loss of his wife and has put her up on this pedestal for a long time. And then throughout the course of the season, that pedestal keeps kind of getting broken down while he's still sort of lifting her up. It's mostly broken down by the revelation that uh, Dion and Ree had an affair shortly before or around the time that Ree got pregnant with TJ. So there's the right. potential paternity question there as well. You know, and the way that uh, they find out that they have the affair, Tommy finds a series of videos that Re and Dion made together where it's clear that they're flirting. They're supposed to be like cooking videos, but while they're making it, they're flirting. So he confronts Dion. Dion's like, no, 
are you talking about? <laughs> and then they get over that. And then they meet up with this celebrity chef that Dion used to work for and also screwed over at one point who comes to their restaurant who wants to give them a bad review but ends up giving them a very good review. And so him and Tommy are just like sharing some wine after this goes down and they're having some laughs. They're getting along. Tommy's like, oh, this is great. This what you've done for our restaurant. There was a shooting outside of our restaurant a couple days ago. It was Patrick, but now nobody's going to come. And now because of your review, people are coming in again. So thank you very much. And the guy's like, oh, man, Dion, man, I remember this one time that he had sex with this one woman. And that's when Tommy's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I will say, too, the chef character has a wonderful name, Dante DePaolo. Okay. I can't even. That's such like a better chef name. Anthony Bourdain. That's be, I, It's a better chef name than Anthony Bourdain. It's a better chef name than Guy Fieri. Dante DePaolo. Like just moi. <laughs> Chef's kiss in terms of naming conventions. Bravo. John, any other crazy highlights that we have to get to? What is there something bonkers that the audience has to hear about that we've forgotten? Well, there's some more crazy stuff that I think we still need to talk about, but we can talk about those after our commercial break and after we give our final verdict on the show when we get to our Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. This show is packed full of drama, intrigue, suspense, teeth, food, wine, love. But with all of those ingredients, Ian, is this a dish that you would reheat? Would you renew? I would not renew. I think that this show at best is like a really good episode of Law and Order in 2004. I think the show has a lot of ingredients that older audiences could enjoy. You know, their their flavor palettes have gone down. They can't taste as well. So there's a lot of <laughs> spicy things here that you can just sort of grasp onto and say, hey, I get that. That's emotionally charged. I understand that to be dramatic. Um, you know, the love triangles... There's just so much yelling in this show. <laughs> There's nonstop wrenches being thrown into their plans in a way that I think is just too much. There are times when I tricked myself into thinking that maybe it was good, but it isn't. It's not a good show. And it is to be enjoyed in some cheesy ways, though. I think it's a fine show to watch with a group of people and just go, oh, my God, Dion, not again, you know. But it just is too much. There were some people that called this a show with a dark sense of humor as well. And I just thought it was a bunch of bad dick jokes, to be honest. Like, they're trying to make it like, oh, look at the camaraderie of these chefs. Like, I don't think that played very well with the other people in the kitchen that are just like, hey, my people from the neighborhood, <laughs> we, used to, we work together. You know, Mr. White. Uh, 
And <laughs> I thought that was kind of cheesy. I just thought that it didn't really come together. The climax of the show at the very last episode was bad when they burned down the restaurant in a fire and TJ finally says his first words on a staircase. Uh, that was really rough. Well, you're really scorching like, the lead there. <laughs> that is a- yeah, I I know. <laughs> It tried to be different, and I get that. Like, it tried to have a different sort of antagonist with soft boy Vincent D'Onofrio. I appreciate that. You know, they got a great actor to play the detective that keeps threatening Dion. He was second in line to be Tony Soprano behind James Gandolfini. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. So he's like a very well-respected New York actor that keeps getting put in these positions where he does not play characters very long. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, he's murdered at the end of season one of this show. Yeah. Um, it just, like, it's too much. Also, Dion as a character, I hate. I absolutely hate. There's a lot of um, crossover between this show and The Bear, a lot of similar themes. And the anxiety of being in a kitchen and everyone's all drugged up and the stakes are high because people need their orders now, you know. And for some reason, each show has this obnoxious friend who's from the neighborhood that has connections to cocaine (laughs) and mostly only hurts everyone else in the situation. But for some reason, he's integral to the experience of this restaurant. And I really cannot stand it i think that there's just a lot of things in the show that try too hard and don't succeed and no it's entertaining enough i guess i don't i don't know it's tough to describe john would you renew i can't believe that it's taken us this long to bring up the bear like and how many connections there are to this yeah the bear is good this is fun and the bear is also fun, but this is a not a good show. But would I renew? Yeah, I would. It was so weird. Wow. It was such a ride. I really appreciate when shows just stick to their thing throughout the entire run of them. We talked about The Fugitive. You know, that's a show that does not let off the pedal for the entire thing. Queens, very similar does not lean off of the soapy elements and just kind of keeps throwing different curveballs at us. This show scratched a very similar itch for me in that what I was watching was not good, but what I was watching was something that had me consistently engaged in ways that other things do not. I did not know what kind of weird crap they were going to keep throwing at these characters. There is seriously a never-ending barrage of nonsensical conflict that is being spewed onto every single person that even does a drive-by in this world. And with that, I don't think that it's sustainable but I'd like to see them try. <laughs> and that's where I think I would be curious to come back for a second season because they did resolve a decent amount of things towards the end of the first season, but we still got some balls in the air from some random, terrible ideas that these characters concocted 
and haphazardly just sort of tried to execute without any real rhyme or reason. And I had a good time. I had fun. It was weird and wild and just fast. And I truly made more notes on this show than I think I have for any other show that we've done because it's just so jam-packed with wild, wild things. So for me, it's like the Babylon effect. Have you seen Babylon yet? No, I still haven't. You've talked about it. I know I have. But the thing about that movie is that it is just like pure excess and adrenaline. And that's a kind of thing that I can enjoy. So, yeah. Totally. Feed me, beast. Feed me. I get it. I mean, I think we've covered north of 40 shows right now. And I think we've hit a point where we don't renew shows just because they're good and we don't not renew shows just because they're bad. Like there is an itch that needs to be scratched where sometimes things are cheesy, but you don't care because there is a certain point of cheesy uses, not stereotypes, but like tropes so that you can understand what's going on so that they can just get to the conflict already. Right. Yeah. And I think this show uses enough things like that where it can be very Velveeta cheesy, but it does use that to be like, let's change all of those things that you're already familiar with in storytelling enough. Like let's do it a bit differently. And let's just crank it up a couple notches for fans of a show like the bear, the tension and the stakes in feed the beast are like way higher Mm -hmm. and yet it still is weird and kooky and I don't know. I I just want someone to rip Dion's finger off already. That'd be nice. They just keep breaking it. Like what's the point? It's going to heal if you, he's not a snake or is he? Maybe if he, you do rip his finger off, it grows back. That could be entirely possible. And then he'd be like, I got a little bit of a nub on my pinky again. And I should be able to be cooking up these pans real good, real soon. And I think with all that being said, it's time we give out. Now I'm just Stevie Kinarbin. Some done so awards. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be a Pinot. It could be a Noir. Whatever it may be, we have decided to give these shows their just creme brulees or soufflés or something else that's really fancy that takes a long time to make. Each of us have two Dunzo Awards to give out to Feed the Beast. Ian, feed me with your first Dunzo. My first Dunzo Award is the Let's Sweep This Under the Rug Award, (laughs) which goes to TJ uh, bringing a gun to school and putting it in his bully's backpack so that his bully, who is, what, nine years old, gets arrested for a felony. We haven't even talked about the bully. My goodness. No. I mean, that is a main storyline. TJ and the bully 
is a thread from episode one to episode 10 that drives a lot of drama. Yes, right. right. So it starts off with this bully. It's a kid named Andre. You know, he is doing things like punching TJ in the chest so that it hides the bruises kind of thing. He also, at one point in an early episode, just like throws a bottle near TJ. We don't really see any rhyme or reason to why the bully does this other than he is just a bully and he doesn't like that TJ doesn't speak. We hear that the child counselor says that he has trouble controlling his anger. That's really all we get from it. Or there's also a scene where the two of them get in a fight. I think they both get suspended maybe and all the parents have to meet. And for like two lines, we get the sense that maybe this kid is getting abused at home. Yeah. But no one else seems to uh, notice or care about that. Yeah. This is after the next sort of evolution of the bullying, which is TJ has befriended this girl who is kind of a graffiti artist at school because TJ is an artist as well and expresses a lot of himself through his art. And this kid, this bully, Andre, like spray paints over this art that they've done like in the school. And so that's a mural of his mom. Yeah, that's it. Right. And so Andre gets suspended. TJ is like waiting for this kid, Andre, to come back to school. And then while Andre is still suspended and TJ is visiting the memorial that is at the site where his mom died, this kid Andre takes a lighter and an aerosol can and torches TJ's mom's memorial. I was gobsmacked when I saw that. David Schwimmer didn't even notice it was happening. No, because he was driving. Yeah, but like they're passing the memorial. Usually if you're passing, you take a look, you know. Yeah. You know, you're like, "Oh, we're right there. Let's" And you'd see the 10-year-old boy right. who is taking a makeshift flamethrower to your That's wife's a three memory. Foot flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, like come on now. He would see it in reality. It wouldn't just be TJ unable to talk about this uh in any form. Well, TJ doesn't even go like like shake his dad's arm and be like, "Look, look, look" or anything like that. TJ's just like, "Uh And so TJ goes, well, I'm bringing a grandpa's gun to school tomorrow. And you think that TJ is going to shoot the bully, but he does not. He just frames. He just frames the bully for a felony. Right. And then this is after like the whole season of grandpa teaching TJ how to toughen up, teaching him how to box, teaching him how to clean and use guns and shoot them in his basement, I guess. Um, it's a good basement. It also has a uh, punching bag as well. So Grandpa shows him how to throw a punch. That's right. And TJ is very interested in these guns. And you see this whole gun at school storyline coming for like five or six episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's no hiding it. I mean, they let you know what it is. There's one episode where it ends with, you know, TJ like, handing the gun and sort of pointing it down the barrel of the the camera. And then it's a cut to black there. It's telegraphed for a, a little bit. Also, the bully at one point calls TJ and has a girl pretend to be his mom and tell him that oh my God, she yeah. hates him. It's really hey, bad. TJ, this is like it's very your dead mom. Bullying. I've always hated you. Bye. 
Yeah. Freaking sad. Weird. Oh, God. So anyway, what's your first Dunzo Award, John? My first Dunzo Award is the Magic School Bus Award, and that goes to the Mobsters Megavan. So Patrick the Tooth Fairy and his merry gang of goons are driving around the Bronx in one vehicle, and that is a van that is about one and a half times the height of like a normal van and Patrick will often sort of slide open the side door or have one of his goons slide open the side door. And he's like sitting like in a swivel chair within the van. And so he's able to just like have a nice little turn and be like, you owe me money as they're sort of driving alongside the people that owe them money. It also has like a bar. It probably has like a massage parlor. I don't know. At one point, we find out it has a submachine gun in there. So <laughs> when the Vietnamese mob is shooting at the van, which everyone must know who's in this van at this point, right? Like this is a target. It is a s- uh, uh, statement of a van. It is a bold van that is intimidating to look at and people are like, when they open the door, it's like they're surprised to see Patrick. It's like, this is Patrick's M.O. It's Megavan. And that is how he gets around. Also, from a production standpoint, it's like a really cheap, dumb thing to do and makes this show look really, really cheap. Because like in New York, when you're working production, there's two or three places you rent out uh, cargo vans and trucks and whatever for equipment or 15 passenger vehicles to drive like the crew and the cast around or you rent out a sprinter van and it's pretty cheap to do (laughs) and it's somewhere between a cargo van and uh, like something you can transport people in and I know exactly where they got that van from I know almost exactly how much it costs and it's what you do if you're getting cheap in New York, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. You don't know that. I don't. Ian, what is your second Dunzo Award? I'm giving out the Irresponsible Filmmaking Award, which goes to the stunt where the dead wife, Ree, was killed, where she's hit by a car, and the stunt woman has to sort of like jump on the front of the car with her back roll backwards to the point where her neck and her back are like a C, you know, and then she falls off of the car. And it's a crazy stunt that only lasts a second or two. Yeah. And as I sort of ramp up my sort of directing career as I'm writing stories and trying to figure out ways to make movies, I see things like that. And I'm like, that is insane to ask somebody to do. Yeah. Or like, I see movies where, you know, guys are just running around literally on fire, you know, for a couple seconds. And I mean, I know there's stunt people. I know there are safe ways of doing these things. I know that you train in order to put your body through this stuff. But I cannot imagine actually asking somebody to do that. And now when I see that stuff, 
I just think it's irresponsible. I don't like it. I'm like, we got the point already. There's no point in making somebody go through this and actually putting their body through harm. But I, I don't know. I mean, that might be a bit controversial, but I just think that at this point, what you're asking actual human beings to do is getting a little gratuitous in film. Well, it's especially gratuitous, too, because throughout the entire season of the show, it's sort of set up that TJ is putting together pieces of this accident in order to help him cope with the trauma of seeing his mom killed. For example, he draws pictures of birds because he remembers birds flying up when the car made impact. He draws pictures of tires because of the tires sort of screeching. And he even draws pictures of his mom sort of in these contorted positions. So you have that illustrated through TJ's processing. And for most of the show, you only get sort of glimpses of the accident. And I think the stunt that you're referring to is supposed to be an exclamation point on this reveal that TJ has at the end of the season where he talks for the first time after he's kind of realized that he's not the one to blame for her accident because that sort of seems to be the origin point of his muteness is that he blames himself for his mom's death. And when he sort of processes it and is able to remember the details of it, he sees, oh, my mom was not killed on accident. Somebody ran her over. But you could have told all of that without showing the mom getting hit because you already had the pieces of that getting put together throughout the season. Like, I don't know why they needed to show that. It just feels weird to me now. I never really thought about that before I started being on sets. And I'm like, same thing with gratuitous nudity as well. Like, I appreciate that Judd Apatow was naked um, in Popstar. Yeah. Because as a director, you shouldn't ask anyone to do anything you wouldn't yourself do. And I think most people would not do what that stunt woman or stunt person, it could have been a wig, had to do. You know? Totally. It's just weird. What's your second Dunzo? Speaking of nudity, my second Dunzo award is the Quick Draw McGraw Award. And that goes to Dion. Because the way that he is able to so seemingly easily and quickly bed women is wild and male-gazy as hell. So there are many things throughout the show. I mean, you see it in the very first scene where he is having sex with his lawyer as she is reading him the terms of his parole. You see it later on in the season when Dion's almost replaced as chef by this guy, Kevin, and Dion is so easily able to sort of like flirt and charm Kevin's daughter. And he ends, she ends up uh, sleeping with Dion, which makes Dion able to sort of enrage Kevin into punching him in front of a cop. That's a whole thing. The thing that really upset me, though, was the sex scene between Dion and Pilar because mm-hmm. that was so out of nowhere and truly there just to fuel conflict. Like Pilar is upset at Tommy because Tommy's distancing himself from her. Dion is trying to 
hide the fact that he has tried to defraud the restaurant. And so in order to distract Pilar, he kisses her and then she punches him and then they immediately go into intercourse. And it just felt so creepy and weird and unnecessary. It's an episode where they're really highlighting this part of Dion's personality where as soon as someone gets mad at him, if it's a woman, he's going to just start hitting on her as like a get out of jail free card. And women are just so into him that it doesn't matter. But it's just there's nothing about him that makes you think, oh, this is somebody who could make women buckle at the knees. There's nothing about that. He seems like the coked up guy that runs to you and asks for your number. Like, and that's I basically actually what disagree. You think that he I was charming? That... I didn't. Oh, no, I don't think that he's charming, but I do think that there are plenty of women that are into somebody like that. It's like tall, beard, has a full head of hair, <laughs> is kind of a mess, but like there's an energy to it. And I mean, I remember growing up and girls being into these grungy looking skaters that never showered. So it's it's just like you're into this kind of guy. And I don't know what it is, but they do fine with the ladies. I guess they do. Any other lingering thoughts before we bring uh, bring on dessert? John, let's get to the souffle after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Ian again. And I'm going to do something that I don't think you're used to your podcast hosts doing, but I'm going to lecture you, okay? Because I see you out there. I know where you are. I know what you're doing. Well, you're listening to a podcast, but you're out there in Nottingham. You're out there in Cleveland. You're out there in Boston, you're out there in Finland, you're out there in Israel, you're out there in the Azores, and you're out there in some places in Lithuania I can't pronounce, and all over America, and guess what you're not doing? You're not reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I mean, giving us a review on Spotify and everything else is great, but let's be honest here. I need you to review this on Apple Podcasts. That is, of course, unless you don't like it. Okay, back to the show. John, sometimes you have a flavorful dish, and it's good. And even if it's not nutritious, you can't stop eating it. Mm. But if nobody comes to the restaurant in order to buy the dish, then did it make a sound? I don't know how to finish that metaphor. Dishes can make sounds. I mean, you plop it on a table and it makes a, you know, thing. I think at one point in Feed the Beast, Dion is just throwing plates against a wall, right? <laughs> oh, or is that yeah. Tommy? No, it's Dion. Uh, Dion yeah. is literally just like, what? So we don't need these plates. It's weird. Right. So they make shattering noises as well. <laughs> um this show came on in 2016. It premiered after Preacher, which ran for three seasons, I believe. And this was the first year of Preacher, which, granted, that was already a commodity. It was based on 
a comic. Preacher had north of 2 million views per episode and lasted three seasons. Mm -hmm. So the bar is not actually that high, right? No. The premiere of Feed the Beast had north of 1 million views, so only kept about half of the Preacher audience. And then it went on to average like 460,000 views per episode, which means that there were episodes that aired to audiences of as little as like 200,000 people Mm -hmm. watched it. Nobody watched this show, John. (laughs) Nobody watched it. And of course, it was it's a miracle that they let it go for 10 episodes straight. But I think that they just thought it was good drama. It comes from some really successful people, obviously. We've talked about some of these actors are from The Sopranos. The racist grandpa is a great character in The Wire. He's a great actor. Uh, obviously, we've got Schwim Schwim and uh, Sturge. Sturge. <laughs> And uh, then also the creator of this show was Clyde Phillips, who was the showrunner for Dexter for the first four seasons. Which Which many would say is just Dexter, because after that, it seemed to have fallen off the rails. Exactly. And then he was the showrunner for Nurse Jackie for like three or four seasons. Yeah. Which was a very successful show and won plenty of Emmys. Mm -hmm. So they brought quite a team together to make this show happen also you know uh the guy that was playing patrick wasn't on Mad Men anymore so i think they really like that actor and they wanted to keep him going on a project so they gave him this and it just didn't work out no i mean and i think what this speaks more to anything is amc as a brand i think this is the first amc show that we are talking about so AMC wasn't really anything before Mad Men. I remember Elizabeth Moss, I know, has talked a lot about how she would tell her family that her new show is airing on AMC and they thought it was A&E and they didn't know what it was. But then obviously with the one-two punch of Breaking Bad and Mad Men, it sort of accelerated AMC's growth in those late 2000s, early 2010s years. But then we've got Feed the Beast in 2016. Breaking Bad ends in 2013. Uh, Mad Men ends in 2015. Uh, Walking Dead also is still going strong at this point. But let me just read off a list of some of the shows that started airing after uh, Feed the Beast. We've got The Sun, which ran for two to three seasons. Dietland, that's a one-season show. Lodge 49, which is actually really great. Uh, and that's two, two seasons. seasons. Yeah. Nosferatu, Firebite, 61st Street, Moonhaven. Like, nobody was talking about any of these things. They AMC seems to be a network that, like, relies on one property at a time. And it's a really interesting time to be talking about this now because obviously The Walking Dead just ended. Better Call Saul just ended. They are going to be leaning a lot more heavily into these uh, interview with a vampire type shows. They just bought that author's entire catalog. Exactly. 
And so they're going to be leaning really heavily on that as well as, you know, Fear the Walking Dead, trying to sort of stretch out the Walking Dead universe until it's unable to reanimate itself, I guess. I don't know. I was going to say until it gets its throat ripped out by somebody's teeth the way that uh, Rick did to that one guy in that one episode. Never watched Walking Dead. so. Well, he ripped a guy's throat out oh, with his teeth. that's interesting. Because his hands are tied. Some would call him the Tooth Fairy. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. I tie it back. Or MacGruber. Yeah, true. Loves a good throat rip. AMC, though, in the last couple of years, has really tried to lean into its streaming brand. And actually, like, it has been growing pretty steadily, but they have actually lost revenue even though their streaming services have been expanding because of the sort of lack of traditional viewership that has not been sort of compensated by their growth in the streaming world, which I think is super interesting and telling. Pretty much all of streaming has been losing revenue. I mean, that's why they're making all these cuts to HBO Max. That's why Disney is laying off like 7,000 employees. Paramount Plus is uh, bringing in Showtime, but also drastically increasing its monthly cost. Right. Netflix is officially cracking down on password sharing soon because there are billion-dollar losses per quarter over the last year, and everybody just has to make it work because it's not like cord cutting is going to stop. No. So... AMC is just part, I think, of this general trend, but the thing that it has working against it is that the AMC brand was really sort of solidified by Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and they've tried a few different times to sort of keep that brand going with things like Halden Catch Fire or Turn. Right. And then there was The Killing, which was three seasons. And then there was a fourth on Netflix to close it out. So it just is like a streaming service with a brand identity because they keep trying to sort of reinvent the wheel with or not even reinvent the wheel, just sort of remake the wheel in different packages. And I feel like Feed the Beast is just a part of that overall package that they have been selling for the last decade plus. Yeah, this show is just a little more dramatic and a little cheesier, though, I think, than the rest. Like, it fits well into, like, Showtime or Stars, but as far as, like, high drama that AMC is trying to provide, I think it falls short. I would agree with that, even though I did like it. And, I mean, you do see the aspirations for that sort of high drama motif throughout Feed the Beast. Like, I think about... One of the things we haven't talked about is that every episode opens with a flame of some kind. You know, sometimes it's a burner on a stove. Sometimes it's a birthday candle. Sometimes it's a trash can on fire. But they have these sort of motifs. And it's like, what is fire and how is it going to manifest in these different ways throughout the run of the show? And like, honestly, I didn't really care, but you could definitely tell that the people that made it really cared about this motif. Yeah. There was also a motif of beast, you know, Mm -hmm. they kept right. The, the name of the restaurant means beast. Uh, There were just like little references thrown here and there that I forgot to write down that were just like, Oh, uh, monster beast animal. Look at us. We're thoughtful. 
Yeah, and I was like, what are they trying to say here? Like, what is what is the beast, John? Well, the beast is that sort of uh, feeling that you get in your stomach when you're about to talk to a handsome-looking person. Uh, you just don't really know how it's going to come out, but it could be a fart, it could be a smile, but it's that sort of anticipation, right? That's a beast. No, that's a quibby. Oh, Close though. Darn it. Okay. So they were really trying to make something extra happen, but I think it suffers a little bit from the Queens and more so the ordinary Joe thing for me of they tried to pack too much into too little. And I was like, just deal with one thing at a time, please. Don't deal with three things and then throw three things at me again and then try to like make them all interplay and keep the drama going constantly. I think that when you hype up the drama this much, it breaks your willing suspension of disbelief and it makes it just a crazy, cheesy show that you're watching. Like it doesn't feel real. Breaking Bad feels real. Mad Men feels real. This feels like a TV show that's trying to make me feel things. And that is where it falls short. And I get that it can be fun. I think it could be fun to watch with people and discuss and talk about how nuts Dion's getting. I don't hate the show. I just can't stand it. (laughs) (laughs) I can appreciate that even if I, I disagree with the overall outcome. One more sort of thing that I think was a signal of its potential demise was the presence of musical theater royalty, Jen Colella, as one of the chefs of Feed the Beast uh, or of Torrio. And she was one of these sort of merry band of chefs that uh, Dion brought in. And I love Cedar because she is such a phenomenal singer and talent. She was Tony nominated a year after this show for uh, the musical Come From Away. But before Feed the Beast, she was kind of notorious for starring in very unsuccessful Broadway shows. So she was in High Fidelity, which lasted like two weeks of performances she was in urban cowboy which was like another one that lasted like three weeks of performances and so when i saw her i was like hell yes jen colella it's so great to see you of course the show didn't do well because you were cursed for so long but it seems like she's gotten out of it because come from away was a huge success but still and speaking of high fidelity next week we will be reviewing little voice which has a lot of high fidelity vibes to it There's a lot to talk about with Little Voice, but Ian, where can people find us? You can follow us on Hive Social, Twitter, and Instagram at TV. You can check out our website, oneanddonetv.com, which my lovely wife made. And you can hire her to zhuzh your home at Cottontail Nest. I will plug that as well. Um, And you can email us any thoughts you have on the shows Tell us why Feed the Beast is an exceptional drama and is award-worthy. It is not just another Queens. It is, in fact, better than Breaking Bad. And that's why you feel compelled to email us about it. Um, OneDudPod at gmail.com. 
email us if you want us to cover a show. Okay? And uh, watch Paul T. Goldman. In the meantime, I think the kitchen is closed. We'll see you next week. Can I order some fried uh, onion rings? Yes, of course. I'll whip that back up. Yeah, start the fryer back up. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.